I'm glad you're here and I'm glad to be with you this morning. So thankful for the way that you have praised God and lifted up His name in song today. It's been a joy to be with you and worship with you. To my brothers who have led us in worship and the songs and the prayers and that great reading, thank you so much. To all of you who are visiting with us today, thank you for being here. Thank you for being the guests of this, this good congregation. Whether you came by the invitation of a family member or friend, we're just glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining us in worship today. In your Bibles, let's open up to Joshua chapter 3, please. Third chapter of the book of Joshua is where our study is going to come from this morning. And let me say to this, this good congregation, thank you so much for this kind weekend that you have, you have gifted to me. Your encouragement and your kindness has just been, has been such a wonderful gift, and I thank you so much. I've been built up by your encouragement. I've been impressed by your worship. I have just been in awe of your shepherds who, sh who lead you with such wisdom and, 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 and strength. It's been wonderful to be with you, and so thank you for allowing me to spend this short weekend. Believe it or not, today is the last day of this meeting, and that's just kind of how these go. They begin and they end very quickly, but I've been so blessed to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to share this weekend with you. We're going to talk today about fear, more specifically the fear of the unknown, but fear is, is something fascinating. I think sometimes the very thing that keeps us from doing what it is we know we ought to do, we need to do, or from being the people that God has called us to be is, is fear, afraid, afraid to do things that are tough, afraid to challenge ourselves to do the things that might be difficult. What's interesting is that of all the commands Jesus gave in the Gospels, the most frequent command he gave is do not be afraid. More than love your neighbor, more than love the Lord, don't be afraid. Take courage, do not be afraid. Fear is important to God. And fear ought to be important to us. And today we're going to talk about a fear that I think is, is tough to overcome. It's difficult for us to, to face, and we all face it. It's the fear of the unknown. I'm going to start with this. How many of you have ever really been lost? And I don't mean turned around like when you go to the Nashville, Air, uh, the, the Nashville airport, you know, where to get off or where to, where to exit. I mean really lost. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you need to go. You're just completely turned around. I mean, there used to be a time if you're traveling somewhere and you don't know where you're going, you get out that big atlas. Do you remember those, the state atlas? Two pages per state, and you get that out and you chart your course and you, you see where you're going. And then there was MapQuest. Do you remember MapQuest? You type in your, your, your destination and print out your directions. And we would talk about texting and driving. Remember reading that thing while you're driving, how dangerous that was? But you're following the directions, you're going. Well, you know what we do today, especially young people? Someone wants to give you directions and we say, no, no, just tell me the address because I'm going to put it in my phone. We just, all of us, especially with technology, we completely rely on our phone to get us from A to B. Well, has this ever happened to you where you're someone you don't, somewhere you don't know where you are and you don't really know how to get to where you're going and so you put it in your phone and it starts, but then you get this screen that says, nope, <laughs> not going to work. Ever happened to you? What do you feel when that hits? You're lost and you don't know how to get where you're going and this happens. What do you feel? Is it panic? I mean, where am I going to go? Probably anger at Apple. I paid a lot of money. This should be working right now. Why isn't this working? Yeah. You feel aimless, directionless. Well, what do I do? Where do I turn? It's the fear of the unknown. Fear of I don't know where to turn, where to go, how to handle what is before me. All of us face this fear. In fact, it's because of this fear, the fear of the uncertainties of the future, that we have books like this one out on the market. The worst case scenario handbook, even the extreme edition. You might wonder, why does this even exist? Why do we have this book? Well, because the author understood something. We fear that which we don't know. 
We fear the things that we can't anticipate. And so he tried to help us in the book. And I'll tell you, this book is pretty helpful. In fact, the very first chapter tells you what to do if you face animal encounters. And it's really, really some fascinating information. And so, for instance, if you're swimming in the ocean and you are entangled by an octopus, just do a somersault and it will let you go. Did you know that? Or on the first page, if you encounter a shark while swimming in the ocean, you just punch it in the eyes and you punch it in the gills. And if you can stop bleeding while getting away, you might just escape from that shark. Right? It talks about the silverback gorilla. I didn't know this. If you're entangled in the grasp of a silverback gorilla, you just stroke its arm and you smack your lips and it might let you go. This book covers everything. Animal encounters, what to do if your parachute fails, what to do if you're abducted by aliens. It covers everything. But did you notice a little word in all that? If. If a shark attacks. If a gorilla grabs you. If you're lost. The fear of the unknown focuses on what all fears focus on, and that is a future that hasn't been written yet. A future that hasn't taken place. The what-ifs of tomorrow. What do you do when you cannot be certain, when you cannot be sure of the fog of the future? I can't see what's before me. How can I anticipate and be sure and confident of what's before me? Well, in Joshua 3, that's what we see. In Joshua 3, we see Israel facing a fog. They were heading into the unknown. At this point in Joshua 3, God's people were camped out on the east side of the Jordan River, and they were just about to go over and claim the land, just about to go over and lay conquest to the, to the promised land. But there was a lot of unknowns here. Did you listen to our good brother as you read there? There's a lot of unknowns Israel had. Let's read it again. This is Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Joshua rose early in the morning. He and all the sons of Israel, they set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan. And they lodged there before the sea. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a, a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Think about that. At this point, Israel was facing some new unknowns, some new challenges. For instance, there was a whole new land. In the entire nation, there were only four people who had even seen the land. Joshua and Caleb saw it years ago. And then Joshua just spent two spies in to see Jericho. But that's it. Out of the entire nation, just four people saw this land. Well, is it going to be good? Is the terrain rough? Will we enjoy this, this new land? Is it going to be hard to navigate? I, I don't know. They hadn't seen it. And then you add to the fact there's a new enemy. Verse 10 lists them all. All these nations that currently occupy the land. Well, they hadn't seen them in battle. They hadn't witnessed their armies. Are they strong? Are they well fortified? Are their cities well built up? They hadn't faced them before. And then you add to the fact they have a new leader. Because for the past 40 years, it had been Moses. Moses led God's people. It was Moses who took them out of Egypt to Canaan. It was Moses who led them through the wilderness. It was Moses who gave them God's law. It was Moses who talked to the people for God and then who talked to God for the people. It was Moses. But now he's gone. Moses is dead, and now it's Joshua's turn. Well, is he going to be a good leader? Does he know what he's doing? Can we trust him to take us into this new land? Can we trust his insights? Can we trust his judgments? Because really, God is asking his people to do something they had never done before. This is a new mission. They aren't warriors. They're not a, a nation of, of, of an army. They're shepherds. And now God's asking them to go not just into the land, but to conquer it. To wield the sword and to defeat enemies, which they had not done. 
And so you can understand why God would say in verse 4, you've not passed this way before. Quite literally, they were entering into some unknown, some new territories as they prepared to go into this Canaan land. But let's be honest about something today. You and I face the unknowns. There are times in your life when you will face the unknowns, the uncertainties before you. For some, it's college. The unknown is college. The first time away from home, the first time away from mom and dad, and that's all sorts of uncertainties. Who is going to feed you? Who is going to do your laundry? Febreze only goes so far. Who's going to wake you up to make sure you go to church or make sure you go to class? And we kind of talked about this last night. You know, you've been taught a lot about God and a lot about faith and a lot about, about the church and a lot about Jesus. Now you're on your own. It's a faith that has been planted and seeded in you. Is that going to become yours? Are you going to take that faith and make it yours? Is this going to be the year that really your faith for the first time is really tested? Maybe by a professor, maybe by a friend, or, or maybe I'm going to meet some people, friends, or maybe a potential mate that might change the course of my life forever. These college students, in a large way, are facing the unknown. What will this year mean for them, the first time away from home? For some, the unknown is moving to a new area, moving to a new place. And maybe some of you are new here, and, and you realize that. It's a new area. There's new friends and even a new congregation. Will they accept me and, and me, them, and, and we fellowship to get together and worship together and work together? There's some unknowns when you go to a new place in a new area. For some, the unknown is sickness. You get that diagnosis and it just kind of hits. It's cancer or diabetes or MS. And you hear that diagnosis and then you wonder, well, now what? It's like looking into a fog. I'm thinking about dialysis and treatment and doctor's appointments and, and scheduling. It's like looking into the future. I wasn't ready for this. What's life going to be like now that I've got this, this diagnosis and sickness? That's like looking into the unknown. And then for some of you, when we lose a loved one, in many ways, it's like looking into the fog. How am I supposed to live my life without this loved one in my life? How do I go on without this person in my life? Brethren, sometimes the things we fear the most are the things we can't see. There's a, a doctor who did a study, and it was really fascinating. He did a study of, of patients who had colon disease. Half of them, he told, you're never going to get better. This is just going to be your lot in life. There's, there's no, no improvement for you. But the other half, he told, there's a potential that, that you might get better, that some medicine would work, and this is all going to be reversed. Six months later, he called all the patients back and just, just observed them. The half that were told, you're never going to get better. This is just going to be your lot in life. They were happier. They were more content and at peace than the other half who were told, you might get better. And you know what he observed? What his conclusion was? Sometimes the fear of tragedy is worse than the tragedy itself. We would rather know that we have a bad diagnosis than not know and worry about it all together. That's what makes this fear so difficult. It's not based on evidence, it's not based on proof, it's not based on history, but it's real. It's a real fear that seizes us. My grandfather was 16 years old when he was shipped to California just before they shipped him to Europe to fight in the Second World War. And his job in California was to load the planes with the stone crosses that would serve as the tombstones for the soldiers. And he still tells the story that every time he picked up a, a stone cross, as he was loading it, he thought, is this one going to be mine? Will this be my tombstone? It's the fear of the unknown. I'm not sure what's coming before me. Can I face it? Can I be confident? What do we do with this fear? 
Well, the answer is really here in our context. God said, you've not passed this way before. You're facing some unknowns. But in verse 5, if we pick it up, God gives his people what they needed. He provides them the answer because it says in verse 5 of our context, Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests. He spoke to the priests and he said, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess before you the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Hivite, and the Perizzite, and the Girgashite, and the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. What did God do for his people? People who were facing some fears of the uncertainties before them, he gave them what they needed. He gave them the ark. Do you remember the ark of the covenant? That special golden box. I think sometimes the only thing we remember is just don't touch it. Don't touch the ark. Bad things happen when you touch the ark. It was a special box. That golden box that God gave his people came to represent the very presence of God. When you saw the ark, you saw God. That was who he was. And so he said to Moses in Exodus 25, there I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. There I'll meet you. The ark was the very presence, the meeting place of God. Well, here's a question for you. Do you remember what was inside the ark? What God commanded them to put inside that special box? A little trivia question for a Sunday morning. Three things. Number one was the Ten Commandments. The stone law written by God. When you see the Ten Commandments, you think of the precepts, you think of the authority, you think of the commandments, or might we say the very promises of God. That which he promised his people, that which he asked his people to follow and do. And then there was Aaron's rod. Do you remember all the things that God did through that rod? Aaron threw down the rod and it turned into a snake. And then he reached down and grabbed it and turned back into a staff. And with that same rod, he struck the Nile and it turned into blood. And so through that rod, it came to represent the very power of God, the God who can do all things. And then there's the last one, which was a little obscure. There's that jar of manna. And I don't know about you, I just kind of wonder, I mean, bread doesn't last long at our house. It gets moldy really quick, but here's a jar of manna in the ark. It's been in there for a long time. Jar of manna. Manna was that special bread that God gave his people when they were hungry. Rained down from the sky. It's a way of reminding his people, God provides. When you're hungry, God gives you food. When you're thirsty, he gives you drink. God is the God who provides for you. Do you see what God is doing for his people here? They have a lot of unknowns facing them. And what God is saying in allowing the ark to go first, he's saying, you're not going to go alone. You're not going into this unknown alone. In fact, I'm going to go first. I will lead the way. Just follow me. It's a lot like a father who's trying to help his child step on uneven ground. Just step where I step. Go where I go. I'm going first. Follow me. And Israel could go with confidence into their unknown when the power and the promise and the provision of God went before them. Just, just look at that in the context. The promises of God. Joshua said, come and hear the words of the Lord your God in verse 9. And what words they were. Did you notice in verse 10? Israel didn't know the enemy. They hadn't seen them. They hadn't fought them. But God knew them. 
God knew the enemy. He named them all. He knew them by name. He knew their strength. And look at that again in verse 10. Who is it in verse 10 who's defeating the enemy? Who is it who's bringing the victory? By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you. God is. Do you hear what he's saying? Before you take one step into this new land, before you even draw your sword, before the fighting has even started, the battle is won. The victory is claimed. I am promising you victory. And brethren, when God speaks, it's so. Just as sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, when God speaks, it's true. When God speaks, it happens. And so here, before they even take a step into this land, he's saying, I'm promising you, you've already got this one. You're going to win. Victory is yours. I will dispossess them. I will defeat them. And then you see the power. He calls them near by saying, come near and see the power of God. Here's a question for you. Keep your eye on verse 10. God sent some spies 40 years before into that promised land. Same land, that same, that same territory. And I want you to notice when we go back, I just want to look at the report from those 10 spies. Notice the change between the enemies in that time and the enemies in this time. The enemies 40 years ago and the enemies 40 years later. Just look at the report here and keep your eye on verse 10 of our context. Nevertheless, the people who lived in the land, they're strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. It says, so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land to which we've gone and spying it out, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. You notice? It's the same enemies. It's the same nations. And the report they gave 40 years ago is, guys, if we go in, we're getting beat. We're getting beat bad. We're nothing like bugs in their sight. There's no way we can win. There's no way we can overcome them. Now think of this. Think of this for a moment. 40 years have passed. What's changed? Has the enemy changed? No. Has God changed? No. What's changed? Israel. Do you know there are some standing here on the east side of the Jordan River who had not seen what God did in, in Egypt? There were some now getting ready to go into Canaan who were not old enough to recognize what happened at that Red Sea. What happened in the ten plagues before. And so notice what God does here. He promises them victory in verse 10. You're going to win, but that's not enough. Before he delivers on that victory, before he defeats the enemies, he shows them the God who makes that promise. He is showing them who is the one who leads them into battle. So look at verse 14. When the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priest were carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water. Verse, verse 16 says, The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. You see what God does? I'm making you a promise. I'm going to defeat these enemies. They've not seen the power of God. They've not seen the great demonstration of God's strength. And so he says, I'm going to show them the one who's leading them in the battle. I'm going to show them the one who's making this promise. I'm your God. This is the God promising you victory. This is the God who's going to go with you into, into battle, into this unknown. 
The song we sing with our kids, My God is so great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. God is singing that song to Israel. I am your God. The God who can stop nature, the God who can stop the waters, that's the God who promises you victory. And really in that, you see the provision of God. I love that little phrase in verse 3. Wherever the ark goes, follow it. Wherever God's at, you need to be where he is. Follow him. The, the idea of the jar of manna in the ark is just fascinating to me. Because it reminds God's people, and it ought to remind us today, God provides. And so when they were thirsty, God gave them water from a rock. And when they were hungry, he provided them bread from the sky. And here they are, camped out before the promised land. And what stands between them and their promise is this river. And there's no way forward. There's no path. Did you notice what God did to get them into their promised land? How he provided a way? He didn't build a bridge. Here you go, nice and easy. He didn't lead them by a pillar of fire around the river to get into the promised land. Did you notice what he did? With his power in a moment, the ark went in and immediately the water is stopped on one side and there's a path created right through the middle. Don't miss why. God is showing his people, when you have a need, no matter how impossible it may seem, I can do all things. If I can make a path to a river or rain bread from the sky, or give you water from a rock, there's not a need you can have that I cannot provide. And so Israel could march with confidence into the Canaan land when that God, and the demonstration of that God, that ark, is leading them into victory. Now, I know what you may be thinking, because I've thought it too. Went back to school shopping this year at Target, and I didn't see the Ark of the Covenant for sale on their shelves. I didn't see it. Packing up the kids for school, and the Ark's not going to make it into the back of the minivan. It's great for Israel. They had the Ark of the Covenant going on before them, reminding them that God is with them, but we don't have that golden box with us today. Wouldn't it be great? Monday morning, the Ark is leading you to your desk at the office, and you're thinking, God is with me. I've got this today. We don't have the Ark. In fact, after King Josiah, we don't read about the ark anymore. Indiana Jones got that wrong. We don't know where that ark is. What happened to it? But don't miss the point. God gave his people what they needed and the time they needed it the most. He gave them something that represented the very presence, power, promise, and provision of God. Brethren, we have that today. In fact, we have that in a greater fulfillment today because the real ark, the true ark, has come. The greater ark has come. Do you remember how John's gospel opened? John 1 and verse 14, when he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the very presence of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of that ark. When we see Jesus, we see God. He is God. And there's not a place we can go today that he is not there. So think of this today. No, we don't have the golden box. We have Christ. We have the presence of God the real ark, the real fulfillment of that everywhere we go, which means in the ark, we had the promises of God. In Christ, in Jesus, we have the promises of God. How did John open that gospel? He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the truth. He is the word. In Jesus, we have that word. We have those promises. We have truth. And so he says, in him, we can know it. You can know the truth, and the truth, it'll make all the difference in your life. It will set you free free from lies, free from delusion, free from yourself, free from your sins. That truth will make the difference in your life. In fact, I love what Peter wrote about that truth. It's a power-packed passage, 2 Peter 1. 
verse 3, he says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. I get it. That's a lot. That's a wordy, that's a wordy passage. But you see what he's saying? God has given us what we need to make it through this life. God has given us exactly what we need to navigate from earth to heaven and to live the life he's called us to live. And through those promises he's given us, brethren, if we'll make them ours, we'll trust them and believe them and allow them to shape and mold our lives. You notice that little phrase there? We'll become partakers of the divine nature. That's a way of saying we get to become just like Jesus. If I take these words and I live them, I put them into my heart, I start to think like Jesus thinks. I start to act like Jesus acts. I start to have a heart like his and a will like his and a focus like his. When these words become my words, his will becomes my will, I become more, more like him. I don't know about you, but the idea of knowing truth, real truth, sound truth, it's kind of like a breath of fresh air in today's culture, isn't it? Since we're saturated in false news, fake news. I mean, you turn on the news today or social media and we're just left with the question, what is truth? Is that the real story? Is that the real, the real account? Is that really what happened? Because we're fed such lies. But what a comfort to know in Jesus we have truth, the truth, the absolute truth in him. And here's what that ought to mean for us. And knowing Jesus is truth, Jesus is to me like a compass. A compass tells me where I am in relation to where it is I need to be. And so what that means is I look to Jesus in determining my purpose and meaning in life. I'm not just a cosmic accident from the goo to the zoo to you. No, I was made by purpose for a purpose. The scripture tells me I was made, fashioned in my mother's womb. God made me with the talents and the abilities, put me in this time, in this age, in this place for a reason. God defi defines my purpose and my meaning. But here's a deeper one. Christ is my compass. He shows me my direction. That means I look to Christ for my value and my worth and my importance in life. That means I may not make the, great, the greatest grades, the highest grades, the best grades in, in school. I may not make the team or the squad or the band. I may not have a very good job or a lot of money. I may not be married. I may not have kids. I may not have all the things that our society says you need to have if you're going to be important. And yet I still mean something to God. In fact, brethren, I still mean everything to God. Because he gave everything for me. It's amazing in five minutes or so maybe 10 minutes, we're going to gather around this table and we're going to remind ourselves of our value, of what God paid for you and paid for me. And we pause in the midst of our busy lives and we, we eat this bread and we drink this blood and for a moment we're reminded, I mean everything to him because of what he gave for me. But we'll leave and Monday morning we go back in our race and we try and grab after worth and value and meaning and everything under the sun. If I just had more money, just more money, I would feel more valuable. If I had a nicer job, a bigger house, a newer car, I'd, I'd feel more worthwhile. I'd, I'd feel better. I'd feel greater. You know, I heard a story of a, of a little girl who was with her mother, and they were at this shop, and, and they were checking out. And you know how at the checkout, they just try and grab you with all those cheap things just because they think you can buy it if it's really cheap? 
And so she was there and she saw by the register this, this little box of fake pearls, two bucks. And the little girl says, oh, mommy, I have to have that. I have to have the pearls. And so she bought them, these fake pearls, and immediately she put them on and she just twirled, twirled in those pearls. She wore them everywhere. Soccer practice, form to church, bath time, bedtime. She would not take them off. Well, a week in of her wearing those pearls, there was one night when her dad came in. It was bedtime, and he came in doing his nighttime routine. He says, honey, do you love me? She goes, oh, of course I do. He goes, can I have your pearls? She goes, no, daddy, not my pearls. You can have my horse. You know my little pink horse with the yellow mane? You can have my horse. He goes, no, I, I don't want your horse. You know that daddy loves you. And he kissed her and put her to bed. Next night, though, the same thing. He came in, he goes, honey, do you love me? Of course I do. Can I have your pearls? No, Daddy, not my pearls. You can have my baby doll. You know, the one I got for my birthday with the blue dress. You can have my baby doll. He goes, no, I don't. I don't want your baby doll. But you know that Daddy loves you. Well, the next night he went into her room and, and he saw her. She was just sitting there sobbing on her bed. And he came in and he says, honey, what's wrong? And she lifted up her hand, tears on her face. And she goes, here, Daddy. I love you more. I had to wipe all the tears from his face. In one hand, he took those pearls. And with the other hand, he reached into a pocket and put a little box, a little blue box. And inside were real pearls. He said, I love you too much. You're worth far more to me than these fake pearls. You deserve the real thing. And brethren, we race, and we reach, and we grab, trying to find our meaning and our value in all these things under the sun. If I just had a better job, if I just had a better marriage, if I just had newer and nicer things, I'd, I'd feel important. I'd feel worthwhile. I'd feel valuable. And God says, do you love me? Do you love me? If you'll just give me your life, if you give me your things, if you give me your, your relationships, I promise I have something far greater in store for you. You're worth a lot more to me than these things you're trying to chase after here. How do we determine our worth in life, brethren? Christ is my anchor. Christ is my truth. Everywhere I go, and whatever uncertainties we will face, I have the truth of God with me. I never have to question what God thinks about me. I never have to question what my aim or my purpose is in life. I have the truth of God everywhere I go. And in the same vein, we have in Jesus the power of God. That's what we preach him. We preach him as the wisdom. We preach him as that truth. But we preach him as the very power of God. And think about this. How in Jesus do we see the power of God demonstrated? Well, there was not a sickness that blew across the seas of Galilee that he could not cure. Lame, blind, those who had leprosy. He could touch it. He could speak it. Cured in a moment. He had all control over nature. The winds obeyed his voice. The water submitted to his steps. And death itself, Right? He could speak and the death came alive and even his own death, death could not contain him. The grave would not claim him. He lives today. That's why we're here. He is a risen Lord. And so that is why Jesus could make this statement, which is true. There is nothing impossible for him. All the things that are impossible for man, nothing is possible, impossible for Christ. Which is a way of saying all things are possible through him. Do you know what that means though? Listen to this. There is nothing you are facing or will face that God cannot handle. Hear that. There's nothing that you can face or will face that Christ can't handle. 
Put that in there. Sickness, illness, disease, cancer itself. All things are possible through Christ. Discouraged. Brokenhearted. Depressed. Looking for hope. Looking for consolation. Looking for comfort. All things are possible through Christ. And then even me. When I've really done it. I've made a mess. I've sinned and I've, I've rebelled against God. And I try to cover that sin with more sin and more sin. And I find myself... In a pit of my mistakes, wondering, is it too late? Would God forgive someone like me? Would he let me be forgiven? Would he let me be back in his family? Would he let me live in his home? Can I find grace now after all that I've done, all that I've said, all that I've acted? Well, all, all things are possible through Christ. All things are possible through him. The famous golfer Arnold Palmer he was playing in a tournament once in Saudi Arabia. And he played so well, the king of Saudi Arabia said, I want to give you a gift. And he said, no, I, the gift is just playing here. I just like playing here. And he says, no, I, I insist. I want to give you a gift. And he says, okay, just buy me a club, golf club, a memento of, of my time here with you. Well, the next morning in his hotel, he found an, an envelope. And inside was a deed to a golf club. Not one you play with, one you play on. A thousand acre golf club, a thousand acre golf course with this brand new golf club on it. Is that not amazing? I don't know if it's true. It sounds like a preacher story. But the principle is rich. You know what the principle is? When you are in the presence of a king, think big. Pray big. Here's Palmer, and he's thinking, I just won a hundred dollar golf club, and he got something worth a lot more from the king. And here we are, brethren. We're in the presence of an almighty God who spoke this place into existence. A God who can do all things. Think big. Pray big prayers. Get out of that routine of all that traditional garbage that we throw up in our prayers. Guide, guard, and direct. Pray big. Pray for healing. Pray for restoration. Pray for grace. Pray for growth. Pray big. That's what Paul said in the book of Ephesians 3. He says, To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Look at that phrase. Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond. Over, above, and beyond. Overflowing. He can do more even than what we think. I love how the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate said it this way. He says, God, through prayer, has equipped us to go deep sea diving, and yet we find ourselves content to wade in the bathtub. Pray big. Dig deep. Bring your requests, as grand as they may seem to God, because He can do it. What's weighing on your heart? What's troubling your mind? What's plaguing your life? Take it to the throne of God. Nothing is too great for your God. Everywhere you go and whatever you face, the power of God is there. A God who can do all things. And then, of course, we find the very provision of God in Jesus in Christ alone, we have the provision of God. You know, one thing that authors say, most psychologists say, is that when you face fear, one of the best things you can do is just play it out. Play it out in your mind. Play out that fear. Just go down that trail and see what happens and play out the worst case scenario. I get dumped. Dumped by the girlfriend. Worse, I never get a girlfriend. <laughs> never get asked. I get fired. I flunk out. I get expelled. I lose a friend. Evangelism, the door shut, slammed in my face. Things thrown at me. I lose a friend. Get unfriended on Facebook. Or even the extreme. I lose a loved one. 
or even my own life, play that out. The plane crashes. We always think that as we're taking off, I know it's going to crash, I know it's going to crash. What happens if it crashes? The boat sinks. The terrorist comes. Or I succumb to the sickness. Think of this. Worst case scenario, if we are in Christ, is all that the worst? Losing a loved one, losing a friend, losing my own life, is that the worst if, if we are in Christ? That's the thing. If I have Jesus, I have something that neither death nor pain nor evil nor temptation, nothing can touch in him. I have freedom. I have forgiveness. I have a father adopted through him. I have love that is unfailing. And that is all in Christ, which is why we say in Christ, I have all that I need. I have what I need and I have all that I need in him. That's what that Paul taught in the book of Philippians 4. He says, I, I don't speak from want. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Look at this passage here. He says, I have learned how to be content. Content means satisfaction, being satisfied with what you have. And he says, I learned that. You know why? Satisfaction is not coming from birth. It's not natural. Spend time with my two-year-old and you'll learn that. It's not natural. Babies are not content. Kids are not content. You know what the sad thing is? Some of us older folks are still trying to learn contentment. We're still trying to learn that. Be satisfied with what you have. Be satisfied with what you own. And Paul says here, he's talking about money. If I have a lot of money in the bank, over and abundance of, of what I need, or if I'm broke, absolutely broke, I don't have anything, what else can we put there? Trade that out. If I have a job or I don't have a job, if I have a really nice house or I'm homeless, if I have a lot of friends, I don't have any friends at all. If I'm married or if I'm single, if I have kids or if I don't have kids. He says, I've learned the secret of being content. And you know what it is? It's not about family. It's not about relationships. It's not about money. It's not about jobs. It's not about what you own. He says, the real secret of being satisfied is Christ. And here's why. The only real source of my joy or your joy and satisfaction and peace and security it's not found in your relationships. It's not found in your jobs. It's not found under the sun. It's only found in Christ. Which means if I have Christ, I have what I truly and desperately need. And if I have Christ, though I have nothing else, I can be satisfied. We might say it this way. In my darkness, he is my light. In my despair, he is my hope. In my sadness, he is my joy. In my darkness, he is my light. In my weakness, he is my strength. In my death, he is my life. And even in all of my fears, he is my courage. He is what it is I need most. Don't we sing that in that popular song we sing in, in, in worship? And Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. But heights of love, brethren, but depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. 
It's not in relationships alone or in family alone or in my jobs alone, my own strength alone, in Christ alone. My hope is found. Are you longing for that in your life where fears are stilled and all those striving cease? It's found in one place, good brethren. That's found in Christ. Here's the truth, the sad truth of life. Things change. Change is just an inevitable part of life. This country has changed. Someone was telling me this all used to be farmlands. What happened? Change. Nations change. Leaders change. Trends change. We don't wear bell bottoms anymore. Things change. And even in your life, change is coming. There are uncertainties facing before you, and you don't know what's coming. That's what makes them the unknown. What's coming down the line for you? Is it joy and great times? Or there's some hard storms you're going to have to face and endure. It's the unknown. But brethren, we don't have to fear the uncertainties of life. We don't have to fear the unknown when we remember the one thing we can know. The one thing that never changes. It's what the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and every tomorrow. Hear that. My life is going to change. Things are going to change. I'm going to face some, some difficulties. I'm going to face some real unknowns. But there's something that will never change in all the changes I'll face. That's Jesus. He is who he was and who he is now and who he will always be every tomorrow until all time comes to its end. Which means this. There's not a place I can ever go that he is not there. There's not a thing I can face, a situation that I can face, a hardship that I can endure that he cannot handle. And there's not a need that I could ever have that he himself cannot provide. The real question is this. Jesus is the promises of God. Am I listening to him? He is the truth. He is that anchor of understanding. Do I listen to him? Do I seek his counsel? Do I seek his wisdom? He himself is the power of God. Do I trust in him or am I trying to solve all of my issues on my own? Do I depend on him? Do I trust on him? And really, that's the that's provision. Do I look to God to provide for my needs or am I still trying to be the God of my own life? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life and my strength and my song. In fact, we have a song we're going to sing right now for that very reason. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth living because he lives. Do you have fears you're struggling with this morning? Have you allowed fear to be the very thing that keeps you from being who it is God wants you to be and doing what it is you know you need to do? Do you need some courage from Christ? Do you need some encouragement from your brethren? This is a great time to seek Him. You're here in the presence of a lot of people who would love to help you and strengthen you in your walk with Christ. And so if you've come here today, either ready to, to start your journey with Him, putting on Christ in baptism, or if you're ready here today to get some help and face those fears and to live a courageous life in Christ, we'd love to help you with that right now. Let's do it right now as we stand. And as